this was about as bizarre and as easy as it gets. So the number for me was a number that would allow me to never have to work. I feel like we got top, top, top. I went from a sale of you know five hundred thousand dollars to in debt. One hundred ninety-two million dollars. This is Built to Sell Radio with your host John Warlow. This episode of Built to Sell Radio is brought to you by the Value Builder System. So you're an entrepreneur and you've got somewhere between a million and 10 million in annual revenue. And you're trying to figure out what's next. Maybe you wanna scale up, maybe you wanna sell, maybe you wanna bring in a manager and delegate some of the day-to-day stuff, bring in the next generation of leaders, maybe you wanna pass it down to your family. All of those options, the one prerequisite is that it's built to sell, that it's actually something that you could pass on to another generation without you. And that's really what we try to evaluate using the Value Builder score. It takes about 15 minutes to complete the questionnaire, and then you're going to get a readout of how your business would be viewed by an acquirer across eight unique dimensions that acquirers care about. Again, it takes only about 15 minutes. You can do it free at valuebuilder.com. How'd you like to get an offer for your business of $25 million? Sound good? Now imagine getting that within 12 months of starting your company. Sound impossible? Well, that's exactly what Michelle Romanov did. She built a company called SnapSaves. And within 12 months, she was getting offers from venture capitalists that had an implied valuation for her entire company of $25 million. She ended up turning them down because she had another offer to acquire her company outright from Groupon. It was a term sheet, which she managed to get them to double their offer into a full letter of intent by the time she accepted it and fell into the arms of Groupon. She stayed in Groupon for a year and went on to build many companies. She's now a star of Dragon's Den, which you'd know if you were in the United States as Shark Tank, where she invests in in companies. On this episode, I got her to tell us about what she looks for in an investment as a dragon. Also take us through the SnapSaves acquisition by Groupon. Uh, Michelle is a prolific entrepreneur. Uh, She was one of the Profit's top 50 fastest growing companies. She was one of the W100 fastest growing women entrepreneurs. Entrepreneur uh, of the Year Award from Ernst & Young. Uh, WNX uh, 100 most powerful women. RBC Canadian Women Entrepreneur of the Year. Uh, And she's done this all at the tender age of 31. (laughs) To tell you how she does it and what she looks for in a company to invest in. Here's Michelle Romano. Michelle Romano, welcome to Built to Sell Radio. Thank you. It's great to be here. You know, we're both Toronto kids and, well, you're from Calgary, but now live in Toronto. You know, uh, people in Canada know who you are, but people, a lot of our listeners are from the U.S. and and outside of the U.S. uh, and may not know who you are. Uh, But I know who you are because you're the newest star of Dragon's Den. For those of Mm -hmm. you who don't know Dragon's Den, it's like Shark Tank in the U.S. Um, You're a TV personality. I am. I am. Yeah. It's, uh, in the last couple of years, that's, uh, that's definitely taken off. But that's not how you got your start. You got your start in entrepreneurship. So let's talk about that. I mean, uh, Mm -hmm. you went to, you went to Queens, took engineering, got an MBA. How did you get into entrepreneurship? Yeah. I mean, I was, uh, you know, my first year engineering, I kind of knew that I was going to be much better at building businesses and bridges. And so, uh, my very first business was an environmental coffee shop. We were, uh, I, I wanted to do something on campus. I was, you know, 19 years old and um, started a place called the Tea Room that's still there 11 years later, which is pretty cool. Um, kind of caught the first bug. I'm like, okay, I can do this. Met two other guys in engineering and we spent, um, you know, 
a year, I guess, brainstorming what the next million dollar idea would be. And I did my MBA the year after my my engineering degree um, because the business school liked that I had started a business earlier. Uh, and so we started brainstorming and the three of us decided that we would pursue caviar and fish farming, which was about the craziest thing that three 21-year-olds could have come up with. Caviar and, and fish farming. Yeah, no, uh, and we had a good reason. I mean, worldwide supply was down by 95%. You know, the world had overfished the Caspian Sea. And so we ran around, won a bunch of business plan competitions. It was the first 100 grand I ever raised. And actually were crazy enough to move out to New Brunswick and open a fishery from scratch. So that means like truly rubber boots every day, boats, fishermen, processing facility, and uh, sold their product across Canada. Um, the business was actually quite profitable, but the problem is, we started this in the summer of 2008. So by the fall of 2008, we were in a global recession and that didn't make it a, a great time to sell luxury goods. Got it. So uh, how did you exit the tea room? Did you sell it? No, it's, it's still operated. It was, uh, it was all operated under kind of the, the, um, the student community. And so um, oh, cool. it's still run by, uh, by students there today. Um, so did you, you shut know, we, down the caviar business or what happened to the yeah, caviar business? The, ca the caviar business, um, was shut down. What was that uh, like to, to sort of, I mean, did, like how, did, how was that? I mean, you put obviously a lot of energy into it. How did that feel? How would you describe the emotions of shutting down a business? Oh, I mean, there's, there's, uh, you know, there's nothing that can, that can describe how painful it is to, to have, you know, discovered and built something and then have it, uh, not work out. Um, and it didn't work out because we didn't have a good model or we hadn't figured something out. It worked really because, you know, there was, there was going to be no way we were going to sell this product during the recession and we were denied an export permit. So we couldn't, um, export our product outside of Canada. Uh, and it was, it was really hard. I mean, I remember it was probably the first, you know, huge failure in my life where I remember going to, um, parties and not wanting my friends to ask me how things were going because it was just, it was awful, but it was a really important, uh, milestone to live through for sure. So where to from there? You, you took a job at some point. I, I, yeah, uh, yeah. Yeah. So, so, I mean, look, the, the recession was pretty bad. I went to uh, Sears as the director of strategy. Um, I got to see so much in retailer there at, at the time Sears was the largest um, e-commerce company in Canada. And I knew that this was going to blow up. And so a year later, um, the same uh, you know, two partners, Anatoly, Ryan, and myself got back together and said, you know, look, we should start an e-commerce company and, um, and started Bytopia, which uh, effectively started out in, in the daily deal and, and e-commerce space. Um, so I would know deal, like deal of the day stuff. I've forgotten the, there was one that was a really big deal when it first came out. Um, were you, were you emulating the, the U.S. deal of the day site? I've forgotten the name of it. Groupon? I'm not thinking of Groupon, actually. I was thinking yeah. of the deal of the day prior to, to Groupon. But where did you get the idea for Bytopia? Um, so, I mean, we uh, it, it was kind of coming off the back of Sears, right? I had seen um, what it took to make e-commerce successful, um, that, you know, local businesses. And, and again, we were in the recession, right? So people were looking for incredible deals. Um, we had seen some of the success in the U.S. And I mean, really started with, with a pretty simple business plan. Like this was all launch and iterate quickly. Um, and we did in, in our first three months, I think we had done $400,000 in sales. So we had really figured out that we had uh, quite a business here. Um, we didn't raise money for, for uh, at all in that company. And it 
it's, uh, you know, it's still around um, six years later now. And so then how did, how did Snap Saves sort of evolve out of, or did it evolve out of Bytopia? Yeah. So we had started um, growing really quickly. Uh, we, you know, Bytopia really grew by doing quite a few acquisitions of our competitors, doing a lot of deals with national merchants. And, you know, by kind of 20, it was 2013, we had figured out that we had 3 million customers and we could really deliver great deals on restaurants and things to do um, and products. But the big category that we were missing um, that really mattered in the discount was grocery um, because everyone is looking to save money on, on their grocery bill. And it's an extremely inefficient system, the way that, you know, consumer packaged goods companies or, or what, you know, CPGs. Uh, distribute these coupons because in the U.S. it's like a hundred billion coupons are mailed to people's houses every year, right? Like that's just it's, well, it's a huge it's a huge industry. It's insane. There's no data. There's no like you're literally printing money and giving it away. It's you know like there's so much fraud surrounding this. And so we said, well, this is crazy. And it took actually a lot of iteration to get the idea right. You know, we started looking at print to home solutions and sample boxes that we could send to people's houses until we finally figured out that if we, you know, put offers on a mobile phone, um, that was the best time to engage a customer. And then to redeem those offers, we didn't want to be integrated with the retailer. So we just had consumers take a photo of their receipt. Um, and that was really brilliant because in turn, we got all of the data um, that was on that receipt and we got, you know, receipt history from multiple different retailers. Um, and it was really, really easy for the consumer was the biggest thing, right? You know, two seconds, take a picture of your secret, $5, like that's a, that's a great deal. Um, and so that, um, let me see if I get it. it. Let me just kind of play it back and make sure I get it. So I walk into a grocery store, Safeway, Loblaws, whatever yeah. I, I check out. Oh no! Sorry, I get it. I get some sort of notification that I'm in a Safeway, and that there are these five deals I can get. You know, save money on Lay's potato chips if I if I buy them. How would I get notified of that? Would it be a text message? Yeah. Or- no, it's, you you either have a notification, you check the app, um, browse a list of offers. So exactly, a dollar off Tide, a dollar off Lay's potato chips, a dollar off ketchup. Um, put them all in your cart. Um, check out as normal, and then take a photo of your receipt, and then we reimburse you. Um, the dollars for those coupons. Got it. And then does does Lay's Potato Chips and Tide or Procter & Gamble, uh, do they get contact level details of the consumer, like who they are, you know, what their phone number is, what their email, or are you, are you aggregating that and giving it to them at a, at a sort of a meta level? No, we're not, we, we weren't giving them individual, uh, you know, consumer data, but they could certainly use our platform to continue to target offers. And so you could give your offers to people that bought competitive products or, you know, cool. do really cool things through the platform. But, um, no, we weren't, you, you, you we weren't selling, um, consumers data directly, nor would that be, uh, really that useful. Got it. So, so how did you finance the development of snap saves? Yeah, it's a really good question. And so, you know, this, so, so then, you know, this became a spin out of Bytopia. We basically used the cash that we were making in Bytopia um, to start funding this. We started with a couple of developers building the product um, and then backed up to a team of 15 people. So we didn't raise um, any money for this. And that was really tough. I mean, we were basically using all or more of the proceeds that we were making in our core business to fund um, this new project. And that wasn't without, you know, its own, its own tensions, right? That took a lot. So you're, so you're to do like that ballpark. Are we talking a hundred thousand dollars a month or 150 grand a month? Like what was, what did it get up to in terms of financial commitment that you were 
that you were yeah, investing? Yeah, I think I think we were probably. I mean, we were at yeah, fifteen people, so you're probably above, um, you know, hundred grand a month for sure uh, in cost that it's just taking to 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 put this all together. And how so, long how long did you do that? And uh, you know, before actually launching the product. So, I mean, I think it took us about, uh, you know, we, we try to move pretty fast. So, you know, six months to build a product um, and then you're just starting to layer on people, right? We had an iOS app, we had an Android app, you needed um, salespeople to go sell to these CPGs. We acquired all of the major um, packaged goods companies from Procter & Gamble to Unilever to Starbucks to, um, you know, Coke and Pepsi, you kind of name it. And so you needed to then support that. You needed to have customer support on top of that. You needed to then be driving app downloads. So, you know, as this company is growing, it's, it's headcount is also um, scaling with it. So, so still financing it through the cash of, of, of Bytopia or, or did you take on some, uh, some outside, like outside capital at this point? No, we didn't raise any money uh, for the company, which ended up being you know really good when we sold it because it, it um, you know we didn't have investors involved, but it was it was a stretch. I mean, every month it was like, okay, how far is this going? And you know, do we have enough money to keep doing this? And um, do we need to cut people? So it was uh, it was stressful. And I mean, we did that for um, almost a year and a half, uh, and then Groupon came along um, well, after that. What gave you the courage to continue to invest? Like, what were the signs that you were seeing that that you realized that it was worth continuing to dump all this cash into? You know, this at the time, basically just an idea. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, I mean, since it was, yeah, it was over two years from the day we started till the the day we sold. Um, but it was really that, um, like, we were just getting a lot of user traction. Like, I remember at the beginning, you know, having this like deep dark thought. Are people really going to take pictures of their receipts? And we think of this today, and it's like some people take pictures of everything. They take pictures of documents. They take pictures of, um, you know, all sorts of things. But at the time, you know, the camera wasn't being used as frequently in this way. And so I, I remember being, um, you know, you just have those kind of normal doubts. And when we had the app launch, I mean, we had people that were opening the app like ten times a day to see if there were new offers available. We had people that were claiming. Um, all of our offers. We had people email us and say they went to go buy an iPhone for the first time so that they could use this app. And so it was some of those early indicators. Um, and it was how fast the users were growing and how engaged the users are that really gave us, um, you know, the encouragement to keep going. And then um, we were able to get, you know, some really strong initial traction with consumer packaged goods companies. So, you know, then you could start signing 50 or $100,000 deals. And that started to really supplement um, a lot of your cash flow. Got it. So the CPG firm would be paying, not only giving you the, uh, I guess that was the business model, right? It wasn't, they were giving you the coupons, but they were also paying to be on the platform. Well, they were paying to have the coupons distributed to a, yeah, to a set audience. And really um, this was far more efficient than anything that had been done in the past because we were only charging you when someone actually went and bought the product. And so in all other methods of couponing, you have to pay for distribution, not knowing exactly um, what's going to be redeemed. But here in this case, uh, you know, we could, you know, assure you that this was a real customer that had gone in that bought the product and, and showed you the receipt. Talk to me about the partnership you had with Anatoly and Ryan. Are you... Had you guys maybe just describe the partnership? Is it like a three-way deal? Everybody's equal? Uh, was one sort of more dominant than the other? Maybe just talk a little bit qualitatively about the partnership. 
Yeah, no, I mean, I, I think I got really lucky. I mean, I met Ryan Manchelay when we were um, in undergrad and it, it just became like we, we started, um, we started early, but only way to divide a company when you start when you're 19 years old is a third, a third, a third. And, uh, and we had, you know, just kept that structure. Uh, and it was, it was really good because there are times when, you know, you are up and others are down and to have, you know, two other partners with you in the trench, um, was a really big deal. So it was, I was always really appreciative. I was, uh, you know, still incredibly close with, uh, with, um, Anatoly and, and, you know, we, we've just spent a lot of time working together. It's been, it's been a great partnership. What was the exit strategy for the business when you started to, to kind of conceive of and think about snap saves? You know, I think that we had run, um, you know, I get asked like, well, did you, did you start this to think about selling? And I think that, um, what I always say to entrepreneurs is like, you have to consider what your options are at every inflection point. Um, but you know, you got to be building something for it to last because you, you never know if a sale is going to close, if it's going to come through, if an industry is going to turn. And we had seen it all on daily deals. I mean, we had seen like the rise of this massive space. I mean, Groupon and Living Social had both um, were valued at over a billion dollars. Uh, in the very early days, there were 40 competitors in Canada. Like the next largest player to us had raised 30 and $60 million. Like this was so competitive. And then the whole space kind of went out of flavor at one point, And we kind of had to ride down that crash and, um, and keep going. And so, uh, you know, when we started Snapchat, we were like, this is really good for our consumers. You know, if we can um, create a good business model with these CPGs and get lots of traction with consumers. I think we'll have some options. And then what we really started doing is we started to say, well, look, I think this is a business that can scale with, with venture capital and it can scale much faster with that. And so we had bootstrapped, you know, the caviar business and, and Bytopia, but we said this time, you know, we should probably take on um, some funding. And so it was actually that process of starting to talk to VCs. We spent, um, four weeks in the Valley, uh, in January of, um, of 2014. And it was then, you know, that Groupon who became our eventual buyer really got wind of, of what we were doing and, you know, started to engage us. How did they find out? You know, I think it's, it's a small community, right? They had, they had heard the story. Um, we were connected, uh, to some folks within their, um, within their VC group. Um, and, you know, someone was just like, well, I think they might want to take a look at this. And so they, you know, reached out to us. I'm trying to remember when Groupon went public, but it was a, was it before 2014? Like, were they public at the time? Yes. Yeah. Yeah. They had been public for a couple of years. Okay. There you go. I'm I'm working on <laughs> my brain is obviously working on dog years or something. So they're, no they're public. Uh, they are. So they kind of get wind that you you know you're looking at options, whatever. How did they approach you? Do you remember if it was a letter, an email, a phone call? Like how did, what was the first contact point? You know, there was a bunch of um, mutual connections, right? So we had um, you know one great guy from Toronto uh, that introduced us to. Uh, the chief of staff at Groupon. We had um, a couple of mutual connections from the manager team. We had, you know, the Light Bank is um, Eric CC fund. So we had met one of the um, the partners of the fund. And so it was, it ended up being a bunch of, you know, little connections that finally said, oh, well, if you guys are in San Francisco, like we should sit down and in the Palo Alto office and just kind of, you know, see what you guys are doing. 
Got it. So then how did it go from let's have a chit chat to something more serious? Yeah. I mean, I, um, we, we had a, we had a first meeting. Um, and I think that one of the things that I always, um, tell founders is that this sale process, like, you know, you think it's going to take a couple of months and it always takes like six or eight, even with an early stage company. And I, I haven't sold, um, you know, a, a truly, uh, later stage company, but, you know, we had the first meeting, um, like, you know, lots of healthy tension about, you know, challenging the business model and if this works and, you know, what's happening with, with the traction. Um, I think that we had, um, some good pieces of fit because we actually understood what it was like to integrate with a daily deal company. So if you think about it, like we were, um, using all of the Bytopia users to get a bunch of user traction on SnapSaves. And so we kind of say, look, if you take a, another daily deal site, and this is what's happening with those users, if we apply this to the Groupon database, um, you know, Groupon has 70 million users in the US, they're, they're, it's huge. Um, you know, this is probably what will happen. And I think some of those parallels were, were critical in, in looking at fit. Were they hesitant to engage with you because essentially Bytopia, the other side of your company, was a Groupon competitor, like a direct competitor? Yeah, no, there was there was definite, um, you know, there. And I mean, look, every like we were just in Canada, you know, their primary market was was the U.S., but the, you know, there's certainly sensitivities always around stuff like that. Got it. So, are are they sort of deflecting your questions of them and and? sort of handling all, most of the questions or how, how did you sort of navigate around that? Uh, you know, it's a dance, right? I think that, uh, that it was our goal um, to be in the U S and they were looking for, you know, a U.S. platform that can do this and, and we could show some initial traction that we had got in Canada, but it, but that, that whole part is like the dance of doing the deal. So how did the dance progress from there? I mean, who made the first move as it relates to sort of putting actual kind of an offer in place? Yeah. So then, um, you know, I remember we didn't hear back for a little bit and we're kind of like, okay, not, you know, good, good initial meeting, not, you know, sure what happened. Um, and kind of, you know, I remember we waited, like it was a couple of weeks, actually. It was, we didn't hear anything for a while. And then, you know, got another call being like, hey, you know, I'd love to meet you guys again. Uh, why don't you come down to Chicago? And so we did that, spent a bunch of time preparing, spent a day um, in the office, kind of understood, you know, what a strategic fit would look like, how they think about, um, you know, M&A and tech and team deals. Um, got to know probably the, the people that, you know, which group, you know, if we were to do this, we would be in. Um, and this is still all pretty early. And so, you know, you're doing a stance of, of um, you know, getting people excited, but you're never, you're never giving away too much information. Um, and then from there, I think it was probably another couple of weeks. And then we started working on a term sheet. Define tech and teal deem for me. You know, I don't, that's kind of the, the phrase that the bankers use. I think anything, you know, that's between, uh, you know, a, a seed and a series B could be called a tech and team deal. So you're, you're wanting some tech, you're wanting some traction, you're wanting a business model out of it, and you're really wanting a team that can work together uh, and bring that into a larger organization. So what sort of size of company are you at this point on the SnapSafe side of things? So, you know, we are, um, you know, raising, we have now, and I think it was really important because we had offers to take on 
uh, financing at a, at a true Series A um, level. So, I mean, Series A is, uh, you know, in 2014, you were raising five to seven and a half million dollars. You were taking 20 to 30 percent dilution. So you can kind of peg um, the valuation for there. And so I think that's what we were doing. We had uh, we had customers. We had an uh, iOS and an Android app that was working. We had really strong user traction. We had solid cohort growth. Um, and so those are all the things that are, you know, indications of, yes, we have product market fit. Yes, we have a business model. Um, and yes, we really have something that can scale. And so now it's time to to really uh, turn up the fire. So I'm going to do the math and make sure I got that right. So so you're saying a Series A round at that time, you know, roughly, uh, you know, a $5 million investment would buy a, a, a venture capitalist about 20% of the company. So if I'm doing my math right, and remember, I was a sociology major, so forgive me, but I'm, I'm assuming it's it, the implied valuation there is around $25 million. Is that right? Yeah. Yeah. Okay. That would be the lowest. Yep. So that you're getting a sense that what you've got is is pretty valuable. But again, how many like are, are you are you making millions of dollars? Do you have hundreds of employees? Because when people hear twenty five million dollars, especially outside of the tech space, I mean, they're assuming a business that has at least a hundred employees. Um, like, what size of company are you at this point? No, I mean this is that that's kind of you know tech valuation. That's that's what you're looking for at a at a Series A tech valuation. Um, at the time, I think we had about 15 employees, um, but we had you know really strong user growth, strong user retention, good cohorts, which means that you know users from that signed up four months ago are still as active as users that have signed up two weeks ago. Um, and you have real paying customers, and those customers have have deep pockets, and you're going after an industry. Um, where there is a, um, uh, you know, a lot of like, again, the, the couponing industry was massive, right? Like there was, we took at the end of this, I mean, there was real market share taken out of traditional players here. And so uh, you got to kind of have that mix of things happening in a company for it to be, um, you know, sitting at kind of a series A valuation. Got it. So again, the term sheet comes forward and, and this is, uh, what, what was your reaction when you first saw the term sheet? Well, I think the, the reaction when you see any term sheet is, uh, what was your, you know, um, well, you, 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 every, every term sheet, uh, usually starts off with a lower number than you want. Uh, I think that's universal when you talk to any banker and that's kind of how, um, things go. And then you, you negotiate from there. Um, and you kind of see if there's, there's something that, you know, the team wants and people are interested in and, and the structure of deals. Uh, really makes sense. Um, and then after that, uh, you know, you start, so that kind of negotiates an LOI um, uh, sheet. And then after that, you go into a diligence period where you're going through more on, you know, the team, the technology, the customers, all of that kind of stuff. So the term sheet you got, you looked at it and thought, eh, you somehow got the LOI to something you were happy with. How much, like on a percentage terms, again, we don't need to know the number, but on a percentage terms, how much did you get the, the offer up from, say, term sheet to LOI? Um, you know, there was, it, there, there's pretty substantial swings. I think that, um, you know, when you're negotiating uh, some of these term sheets, there's, there's a lot of differences in with cash, with stock, with earnout. Um, how all these pieces are put together, but um, you know, ours went up, uh, you know, more than double from kind of an opening offer. 
So you got him to double it. Talk about what what, what the, the the makeup of that was. So what percentage was sort of, I mean, again, ballpark. Are we talking an all-cash deal? Was it mostly stock and Groupon? Was, like, was it a hybrid of stock and earn out? Like, give me a sense of what what the what the the kind of currency they were offering. Yeah, no, I mean, uh, and it's and it's really uh, early stage deals are kind of all over the place, but it was important that our deal had, um, you know, cash, stock, and upside in the greater the greater um, the greater project that we were building together. So it uh, it definitely had all of those elements. Got it. Got it. And what was the stock like? I mean, Groupon, I remember that you went at IPO and it went to some ridiculous number and then it fell off a cliff. I mean, it had it had it stabilized by this point or where was it at, uh, you know, on its trajectory? Uh, you know, I, we, they were at uh, they were five or six bucks, I think, when we um, when we got in. So we were, uh, you know, not wasn't super high. So we thought that there was lots of room for, uh, you know, good stock movement. What does it trade at today? Oh, I don't know. I think it's it's been kind of a little bit all over the place. I'll Google it later and add it to the, yeah. the show notes. The um, one thing that I think a lot of folks would be really curious to learn about would be the vesting schedule on that stock. Um, I realized that when you take stock as a founder, you usually have to hold it for a period of time. Uh, how did how did that work in your case? Yeah, I mean, you're looking, uh, again, this is like a deal where you're bringing your team and your technology in and you're saying, look, if we, um, if we come in, we want to we build something um, with you. And so you're kind of uh, putting yourself on a vested schedule of, of what do you think that time is going to take to you know, integrate and build those teams together. Um, and then I think there's, there's uh, you know, so you're, that's, that's kind of what you're looking at. And, and really early stage deals can range from a year to five years is probably the, the normal. What advice would you have for another entrepreneur negotiating the sale of their company to a, to a big you know, public company? Um, you know, I think that, uh, I think that I, um, it, this is like a, this is one of the most intense journeys you will ever be on. I mean, the six months that it took us to do this deal was intense in every way in the most possible ways just you know the way your emotions go throughout the deal cycle um the way you need to maintain you know incredible growth of your company despite um all of the things that are happening uh with the deal um i think so i think that that like going in i think it's really important you know until the deal closes literally anything could happen that could stop the deal so uh, I think it's really important to keep that in mind. It's like you kind of never, never want to get ahead of yourself. Um, and I think that was, and then, you know, advisors are important. We had a really good, uh, we had a really good advisor on our deal and, um, and he was great. What was the closest the deal came to falling apart? Like what were the big sticking points or issues? Um, you know, there was, it's just, it's like these, just normal things come up throughout the process of a deal, right? I mean, um, we had a U.S. public company buying a Canadian company, so there was lots of things um, cross-border-wise we had to look at and deal with. We had um, to look at, you know, immigration for all of our employees. There were surprises in tax structure. All of those things, you know, feel normal looking back, but every single one of those bumps uh, feels quite big as you go through it. <laughs> Interesting. The... Um... 
the relationship with your partners, how did, how did that sort of hold up through the negotiation with Groupon? You know, I think that we had worked together for, at that point, like seven or eight years. And so um, we were a really united front. I mean, there was not, like, you always have kind of, uh, you know, a few squabbles with people. But, uh, you know, for the most part, like, that was an incredibly strong part. We just knew that um, we needed to, like, keep working tirelessly every day to get through this. Um, to do the right thing. Why was it so, why, would, why did you want to do the deal? Because clearly, yeah, I mean, clearly you had options, right? You you could have continued to raise money and and scale your young young folks. Uh, you could have, I guess, held it for years. Like, why why did you want to consummate the deal? You know, for us, it was like I had run. We had been running Vitopia for four or five years, four years, I guess. Um, as a self-funded company, we had done a lot, and we knew just how hard it was going to be to scale. Um, you know, from seven million users to 70 million users and exactly how much that was going to cost and exactly how much solution that was going to take. Not exactly, but I mean, within good reason, we had, um, we had a really good sense of that. And so we figured that, uh, you know, this just kind of, this was like the best option because it was like, we needed a big user base. Groupon wanted to be in the space. We like understood each other's core business models so well. Um, and frankly, we liked the team that was acquiring us. I think that it has to be about the people at the end of it too, because um, when we met some of the folks there, I remember spending a, a good deal of time with them in Chicago before we did the deal. You know, these are people that I, that I wanted to learn from, that I wanted to grow from. And I think that was a big part of, uh, of why we did the deal. How long did you stay on as an employee of Groupon? Um, I was there for just over a year and a half um, and kind of uh, said we would stay for a year and stayed for a bit longer. So, you know, it was it went well. And and how was that time for you? I hear nightmares and, and you know, stories from entrepreneurs saying it, it's like the, the worst time of their lives. They'd go from being, you know, the founders and the, and the, and the, the head of the company to, to sort of reporting to some middle manager in some faraway place. You know, I, I think I, maybe it was just because I had worked at Sears before and, you know, I had been in corporate life at one point. I kind of, you know, got some of the trade-offs that I was going to get with this. So, yes, there was going to be a lot more users, but there was going to be a lot more bureaucracy. Um, I think Groupon had done some really good things in the early days where they had, you know, a full person that was responsible for just our, our team's transition that made a really big difference in bringing us in. I think we got to you know, manage and stay in control of our team, which was a really big deal um, in the success going forward. But so I think that, that there was a bunch of those things that, um, that, you know, made the transition, uh, you know, like different than what I've seen with, with other entrepreneurs when they feel like they've lost their, their independence by selling. Did you buy yourself a trophy of any sort? You know, it was really weird. I, when the deal closed, I was just like, I was just so tired. <laughs> I remember going home for dinner the next night and being like, I need to sleep. But this has been just the most exhausting journey um, ever. So I, you know, there was no, um, it was funny. There was no trophy. I just remember being like, well, this is like, you know, this is a big stage in my life. This is a, a different, a different wealth bracket. This is a different, um, you know, way I continue with my options going forward. Um, 
and it was a big deal, but it was really funny. It was like, I just didn't have the impetuous to like, like I wasn't, I, I didn't need something at that moment. It was, but it was, it was mentally a very different state that I went into. Let me ask you a different question then around money. I mean, how has, has wealth kind of affected your, your point of view, your, your sort of attitude towards life? Um, you know, I think that one of the best things that I, I can like distill wealth and money into is, um, you know, money certainly doesn't buy you happiness, but it does buy you options because, um, and we, I mean, we bootstrapped a company for four years. Like we were used to taking the cheapest route, not the cheapest route, but you know, the most tax or the most, um, cost-effective route on, on everything. There is tax season, so I have taxes in my head. <laughs> the most cost-effective route on, uh, on everything. And, and I just, you know, I think that that, um, that wealth just gives you a different set of options. Like, okay, well, you know, instead of, um, you know, hiring the people that, that are the most junior that'll have to train, we can bring in someone really senior from the beginning, or we can, you know, fly to this conference and make a very big splash from the very beginning. We can just operate a little bit differently. And I think that uh, being capital efficient and especially running my startups has, has been a huge advantage. And it's really something that I look for on Dragon's Den is people that can take a little bit of money and stretch it a long way because you just kind of never know what's going to happen and you never know how the markets are going to turn. Um, but I think that just, it afforded me the ability to think about, you know, a different set of options. Did you think about retiring? Um, yeah, a little bit. <laughs> I think I, I, I think sometimes you crave, uh, you know, the intensity to stop because some of you, I mean, when you do a deal, like you don't see your family, you don't talk to your friends, you don't go to birthday parties, like you literally just eat, sleep and breathe deal. <laughs> Um, and so I think that, uh, that you created that for a little bit, but, um, you know, we, we closed in June. So, you know, like the sun was out and, um, we were, we had moved to Chicago, so we were in a new city and I was in a new adventure. And so it just kind of started a whole new, a whole new chapter. And so I think I was, you know, more than anything excited to start the new chapter versus, you know, excited to retire. What is, what do you bring to Dragon's Den? So for those of you who don't know, Dragon's Den is, again, as I said in the introduction, is like Shark Tank in the United States. Uh, they have Dragon's Den in the UK as well. I think most, many sort of anglicized countries have, have adopted the franchise. Uh, so you get pitched all the time and, and you get to hear the stories of aspiring entrepreneurs and, and decide whether to invest. So what do you look for in an investment? You know, at the end of the day, I'm always betting on the entrepreneur, not really the idea. And it's actually really easy to get distracted by the idea and think that, you know, you have something that's going to make it work. I mean, every company I started, you kind of start with an idea and then you really end somewhere else. So even with Snapsays, I mean, we started looking at, you know, the, the grocery coupon space. We had to try four or five ideas until something worked. And so, you know, you're really looking for an entrepreneur that just either has that chip on their shoulder or the will to win or, and the ability to pivot and the ability to keep going when, you know, just like a fighter, I think is kind of um, what what you're really looking for. And I guess, I guess though, I've seen a lot yeah. of those. I've seen a lot of the pitches, right? Uh, you know, I've watched the show, and I see a lot of that drive and fight and 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 determination, stick to itiveness. Uh, yet there must be something more because a lot of those deals get unfunded, even from people that have all the drive 
all the you know stick to itiveness of the world. So there, there's got to be something else that you look for beyond just the quality. Yeah. Stuff. Well, look, you got it. Okay. So, so I think that the the personality um, and and that's probably the most important. You know, the next thing after that is is you really need like what I call an unfair advantage, right? Like there's going to be so many people chasing one market. Like how are you going to win? That's that's totally different, and that could be you know, connections, that could be technology, that could be traction, that could be a bunch of different things. Um, and then I think you you need a good industry and you need an industry that's growing and you need a fairly unique take on that industry. Um, but I think it's really, it's really then, I mean, after you have the right person, it's like, you know, what what is your unfair right to win here? Because there's going to be a lot of people, you know, barking at the same tree. I love the story and you're a Canadian success story and I can't wait to see the next chapter. Where do people reach you, Michelle? What's the best way for folks to get in touch? Yeah. So I'm on um, all the social media platforms, uh, Instagram, Twitter, LinkedIn, um, whatever you want. It's at Michelle Romano. Michelle is with one L and uh, it's R-O-M-A-N-O-W. So would love to hear any questions and engage with, uh, with folks there. Michelle, thanks for joining us. Thank you so much. Thanks for listening to Built to Sell Radio with John Warlow. For complete show notes with links to additional resources, visit builttosell.com slash blog. John is the founder of the Value Builder System. To find out how to improve the value of your business by 71%, visit valuebuildersystem.com. John is also the author of Built to Sell, creating a business that can thrive without you, and the automatic customer, creating a subscription business in any industry. Connect with John at Facebook.com slash Built to Sell or on Twitter at John Warlow, W-A-R-R-I-L-L-O-W.